0: And welcome to the Northern Overexposure Podcast, where we overanalyze the 1990s CBS television series, Northern Exposure. And today we're going to be analyzing an extremely crazy episode, I would say.
1: Yeah, this is a weird one.
0: Yeah. Oh, wait. First off, hang on.
1: Hang on. Okay. Sorry.
0: Where are my manners? I didn't introduce myself. My <laughs> name is Charles, and this is my co-host.
1: Yeah, my name is Lee, uh, co-host. We're both, you know, neither of us are hosts above the other.
0: That's true. Yeah. All, <laughs> all all hosts are created equally. That's what yeah. they said in uh, host farm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait, what is that? Animal farm. Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: that, that's, uh, mm, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> George
1: Orwell. <laughs> Kicking it yeah. back to 1984. Of Kicking course. Kicking it back to <laughs> animal farm.
0: Uh, Yeah. We also do, is it a segment? Is that the proper yeah. way to call it? Yeah. This
1: is, uh, you know. Yeah, we have a segment at the end of the podcast where we like to introduce uh, Northern Exposure, the television series, to someone who has never seen it before. That's, that's sort of like our mission statement, to expand the reach of the show. It's not an easy show to come across. It's never been available on streaming. Um, it has been available on DVD, Laserdisc, and uh, video. In fact, this episode is one of the few that was released on video and laserdisc really before the dvds came out yeah
0: they picked the wrong horse to back Choosing what? choosing laserdisc uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah they're still they're still making laserdiscs in there just uh, kind of turning the cheek uh, towards netflix like they <laughs> <laughs> uh, so wait what were the- okay That's right. So at the end of this episode of the podcast, we're going to bring on a a friend who has never seen the show and kind of get their take on it, outsider's opinion. Actually, Charles, this is your first time watching the episode, right?
0: Yeah, I've never seen Northern Exposure before, but I've at least seen two seasons of it Yeah, to understand some context.
1: Up till now, you've been watching them, but each episode we watch, it's uh, sort of a new experience for you, whereas I'm uh, sort of a, a fan of the show since high school. And this has been an enjoyable rewatch. Uh, yeah, this episode is called The Body in Question.
0: Yeah, I remember we were talking about this last week on my mm-hmm. guesses on what the episode would be about, and I was nowhere near. What was your guess? Day. Do you remember? I thought they would find like a dead body and they would go into an NCIS-ish episode. Oh,
1: it's kind of has some of that uh, investigative nature, but it's... Not really NCIS, I guess.
0: No, there was no created by Dick Wolf at the bottom, so I was really <laughs> yeah. disappointed. Uh, yeah, this one is really out there. Yeah. E- it- even beyond War and Peace, I would say, even beyond Russian flu.
1: Yeah, this episode was written by Henry Brommel, who also wrote War and Peace and The Big Kiss. So each are kind of weird episodes, though I would say probably War and Peace and uh, this episode here, The Body in Questioner, are kind of out there.
0: Well, let's get into the dead body in the room.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which is
0: that Chris has discovered a frozen Frenchman.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like a giant block of ice that's uh, just floating in this creek. Uh, actually, what does he call it? He, It's the West Fork of the No Name. So it must be the No Name River.
0: Is that the actual name or did they just not assign in the name?
1: Uh, I think it's what was, what was the... Uh, in the last episode, they're talking about... Uh, what does Joel say? He says, like, I live on a lake so remote it doesn't even have a name. Hmm. So maybe it's just this very remote uh, river that just doesn't have a name. It's, I'm sure it's a fictional river.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you think the townsfolk would have named it something.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe there was just no... Um, official name for it. It's probably like a tribal name or something like that, more of an indigenous name. Hmm. But anyway, yeah, Chris comes across this body. He's actually, I think he fell asleep. He's like sleeping while fishing because doesn't he wake up? Yeah. And he he, sees like a boot floating in the water. Uh, It's sort of like this old soldier's boot, you know, he sees a tattered French flag. So, you know, okay, we're starting to get the vibe of what this is. And it's a, it's a sort of like a French soldier encased in this block of ice. Oh, I forgot. There's also an antique pocket watch that, that he finds in that first scene. Is that a pocket watch? I thought it was a compass compass. That's probably what that is, right? That would make more sense. Well, is it a pocket watch or is it a compass? Hmm. So, yes, just going back and looking at it again, it is, in fact, definitely a compass. In the first scene that he picks it up, uh, it's kind of hard to tell if it's a compass or a pocket watch. I mean, we're just we're working with DVD, standard definition quality, though uh, I understand there are some Blu-rays out there somewhere in Australia, so maybe they were able to identify it as a compass before, before <laughs> we could. The song that's playing in this scene on the DVD is called Harmony in Sport, by Henry Soroka. Now, Moose Chick lists this scene as having the song La Donna Amobile playing in the background during the scene. And, and that's like a, a famous uh, Pavarotti sort of operatic song. I'm assuming that this was replaced on the DVD with the Henry Soroka song. They both have sort of a similar vibe. Um, but if you've ever heard La Donna Amobile, it's very distinctive. And um, yeah, like you would, you would recognize the music that's opening this episode.
0: Oh, it's like an iconic song. Mm -hmm. Did you know that when the... Who who was the composer again? I'm sorry. Uh,
1: I know that it's famous for having being sung by Pavarotti. Mm -hmm. So I know he's the performer. Composer, I don't know. I think, okay. Says that it's based on Giuseppe Verdi's opera.
0: I remember reading some trivia on that song that when Verdi was composing it, he asked Pavarotti not to practice. The song because he knew it would be so popular and catchy that the whole street would be singing it if he was practicing it
1: before he even got to perform yeah, it. yeah,
0: <laughs> so he asked him to save it to that performing.
1: I night. always like to think about that, especially with pop music. Like when you think when you hear something really catchy, I just imagine them being in the studio and like listening back to the recording right after they recorded and just thinking like, wow this is the one like this because <laughs> you have to know, right? Like if a song is that catchy, especially like it, take a song that you really like, Charles, just like they have to know that they've created something, yeah. you know, sometimes it sometimes a song uh, rises in popularity for no reason and we don't really understand it. But there's some like golden tracks, you know, platinum tracks that are just like, they knew it. They had to know in the studio. Oh, yeah. I guess like Verdi, he just knew. Verdi,
0: Carly Rae Jepsen. She knew it as soon as she got (laughs) Call Me Maybe. I
1: think so, man. I mean, well, she'd been working on that song for, uh, isn't that famously, it was like a... She had written that song years ago and sort of updated it for the the. Calling, Wait, is that maybe? really it? I think yeah. I think she had had that song written like years ago, and then she sort of updated it, and made it more pop. Oh, okay. So she she'd been working on that for a while, I guess.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, good music choice though. I want to. Yeah. I would have to say I'm sorry they had to replace it.
1: I would have never known, I guess, obviously, but um, yeah, I think I would have liked to have heard it with the original music. Uh, um, unfortunately, <laughs> those dang DVD copies, subbing in the music. <sighs> Um, Okay. So let's uh, follow this storyline along. They bring this block of ice into the brick, right? And sort of all the townsfolk are um, inspecting it. It's a cool shot because it starts kind of incredibly close on, I want to say Maurice, kind of uh, his face is close to the block of ice. And as we start to pull out, um, we see more and more people who are gathered around this block of ice. And as we pull out, the camera also starts to wrap around. So it has a very dynamic uh, movement, camera movement feel. Everyone is leering in, kind of like checking out the block of ice. I really like what Shelly says. Um, She says, he has gentle eyes. I always like Shelly's sort of matter of fact responses to things. And I think we touched on this Uh, in a couple episodes previous how there is some sort of uh, deep down wisdom inside of Shelly that comes out every once in a while. This is a good example of that. It's like a very, um, she can see through, you know?
0: Yeah, she has the gift of being able to part through a lot of just like the surface
1: surface level, yeah, surface nonsense. level
0: nonsense. That's a much more polite <laughs> word than what I was about to
1: say. <laughs> um, so, what do we think about this this guy, this soldier?
0: I, I saw that he was a soldier. Once I saw like the cap and recognized it and mm-hmm. everything, and the all I tri- could think horn. of, tricorn, yeah, what what little tricorn it? hat,
1: tricorn.
0: that hat. War. All I could think of was the frozen caveman lawyer sketch from SNL. Are you familiar with that one? Perhaps what happens there? Yeah, so it's pretty much the same circumstances as what's happening now. Uh, (laughs) It's a caveman that got frozen all throughout time and then got unmelted in modern times and it was played by phil hartman and this lawyer i mean i'm sorry this caveman somehow became a lawyer he went to law school passed a bar and anytime he was out in the courtroom he would say like i'm just a simple caveman but i know that my defendant has been wronged and he deserves full blah 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 and it was a hilarious sketch and Because I was thinking of that sketch, I thought that this soldier was going to come to life.
1: Oh, wow. I thought it was going to go into a really ridiculous direction. This episode is quite weird, yeah. But I guess they didn't go that far. Some bits are grounded in reality. And and Joel even tries to, in this first scene, when, when the soldier is brought into the brick, he tries to dial them back. He tries to bring it back to reality. Obviously, people are wondering is this a soldier more than 100 years old? Joel thinks, you know, it's it's probably like a mannequin, it's a wax dummy, there's no way it's human. Mm-hmm. Because uh, as we learn from Joel, cryogenics, you know, like being frozen and preserved, is a laboratory science. It's not something that can just happen in the wild in, in nature. It's something that requires um, control of all these random variables. I like what Joel has to say. He says, a little bit of PBS proves a dangerous thing. It's like, you know, you learn a little bit about cryogenics and uh, maybe you uh, fill in the blanks a little too much and you believe uh, a little too far about yeah. what science can do. That's
0: a really interesting statement to make. A little PBS goes a long way, though. I proves took a, a l- dangerous thing. I took a little slide on that because I yeah. am a I child of PBS. PBS. I yeah. love PBS. I would never slander yeah. public <laughs> broadcasting.
1: But but in the, in this case, Joel's like, hey, just because you watched a special on TV didn't yeah. mean you like re- you didn't read the scientific journal. Yeah, exactly. Kind of
0: I find that's a problem that. Faces us today, where oh, people yeah. will always say like, "Oh, I like listened to a podcast about this. I'm now a lawyer." I can, or, yeah. or like, "I'm now a doctor. I watched one yeah. YouTube video. I'm a professional."
1: Yeah, or even like, "I read a headline and I yeah. seem to know everything." And headlines are ridiculously spun, you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. So once you get like a slight taste of the truth, yeah.
1: Oh, man. I mean, we're going to get there, but like truth and facts. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to really get into this. This is a crazy episode.
0: You know, speaking on cryogenics, my favorite conspiracy theory (laughs) is that... Disney created the movie Frozen oh, yes. so that when people Google Disney Frozen, the articles will be about the movie and not about Walt Disney's head being cryogenically frozen underneath the Pirates of the Caribbean ride.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's There's my that favorite conspiracy, conspiracy theory. theory. But um, no, is that actually true? Did Disney's head actually? Uh, Walt Disney has his head cryogenically frozen somewhere. Well, I think that's kind of true, right? Or no? Is that conspiracy? No, that's
0: just an he, never, theory. he never. He uh, never. No, he got cremated.
1: Oh wow! Is this really funny to think about that he got? Cry- Frozen. I don't know, man, but they made that movie Frozen. <laughs> no, yeah. So let's reel it back in here to the topic. Joel is trying to argue the case for, you know, a more believable explanation for this, uh, this seemingly human body in a block of ice, perfectly preserved. And just as Joel presents his case, uh, Chris reveals that he has found a journal, like uh, an old aged journal that presumably belonged to the soldier. Who we can start calling Pierre? That's how they reference him. What's his Pierre Lemoulin. That's his uh, full name, according to this journal that they've uh, uncovered.
0: Yeah. So he's kept really up to date journal entries.
1: Yeah. So when they, when they first pull out the journal, they uh, the first entry they point to is April the second, eighteen fourteen. So would prove to be you know almost two hundred years old.
0: Yeah, and. I think Joel raises a reasonable point where he says, Well, anybody could have written the diary. It doesn't necessarily have to belong to this frozen person mm-hmm. uh, right there. So, Joel, throughout the entire episode, he starts off by believing, like, it's absolutely not a body, to it could belong to, it doesn't necessarily have to be a French soldier's body, mm-hmm. to it doesn't necessarily have to be this thing. He moves down, yeah. downwards on his path of belief in order to come to. Well, it's,
1: you know, he's not, he's trying to roll out. All of the, um, you know, he doesn't want to jump to uh, assumptions, you know, he doesn't want to make an assumption. So he's trying to uh, disprove what he can or not accept as truth uh, something until he has proven it true.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which is in character with Joel. So I really enjoy that. I thought that one of the neatest things that Joe talked about, in order to prove that this was a fake, yeah. was that he wanted to take a piece of clothing yeah, or look, something to see if nylon or any synthetic material was in there, right? Because those were made after. Yeah, those would not design. have
1: existed. Um, yeah, so that's I think. Uh, what is it? After they, the first thing they test is a bit of skin, right? Like they tr- like yeah. Ed is like drilling into the block of ice I to, to get a sample of skin.
0: I love that Ed is the designated man. He's got like the <laughs> ice throw and everything yeah. and he is the one in charge of that.
1: Yeah, Maurice is like standing over him. I think at this point they've moved the block of ice into the freezer at the brick, which is uh not uncommon because in all his vanity, they preserve a dead body in the freezer of the brick.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, this is not unusual to them.
1: Oh, we skipped over something. Uh, We learn in uh, one of these scenes early on that Maggie had taken a semester at the Sorbonne in Paris. Oh, yeah. She uh, grabs the journal, Pierre's journal, and tries to roughly translate some things. I think also Holling, having sort of a Canadian-French background, is uh, called upon to do some translating. This is also brought up, uh, the fact that Maggie had spent some time in Paris, this is brought up in... Oi Wilderness, when they're sitting around the campfire. And she talks about wanting to, you know, having ambitions as a child or as a young woman. Uh, she was always wanted to be a pastry chef. And she talks about the, um, I think she pronounces it, Poilin Bakery on the Rue de la Cherche Midi in Paris. And so there's just like these little hints that they don't really dive into, but it's like, oh yeah, I, I studied in Paris for a semester. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a baker, like uh, this famous bakery. Mm-hmm. Well, actually... Do we know where her alma mater is? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I uh, have a correct, like, canon answer, but I can give you some, some clues, maybe. So we know that Maggie grew up in Gross Point, Michigan, mm-hmm. and sort of decided to move to Sicily at some point to sort of be her own person, you know? And we learn a little bit in this episode. She was in Paris, at least for a semester, and that had a large effect on her life. There is an episode. I don't know if it's in this season or it might be in the next, where we see Maggie wearing a sweater that says Texas A&M. Oh, what? So that's kind of crazy. Like Gross Point to Texas. I don't. I don't think it's ever mentioned um, outright. So it doesn't necessarily mean that she did study there. Maybe she knew someone who studied there and inherited this sweater. I don't
0: oh, know. that's true.
1: We can look into this further once we get a little more information.
0: Presumably. I would guess that she majored in mechanical engineering since she built that plane and she's yeah. a pilot.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I would, I don't know though, because I almost believe, like, that's definitely something she has a lot of experience with, but I almost want to believe that she, like, you know, she decided to start her life new and move to Sicily. And then when she was there, she just, like, read an instruction manual. You know, she <laughs> taught, I, it's something I think she would, like, teach herself, you know, to build a plane. Uh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I mean. Maybe I'm giving her too much credit, but you know, I think she's like, she's decided and set out to, um, become her own person and and do things her way, you know? Mm,
0: That's a good theory. So Joel's deciding to take like a couple pieces of fabric from the soldier from Pierre in -hmm. order to see if he's legit, to see if he's real. Yeah. But did you know that that's actually a way to tell if paintings are real?
1: Oh, how does that work?
0: Yeah. So. A lot of the times, especially in today's time, paintings can be so realistic that they look like they're the authentic painting. There's no discernible way to tell if it's a fake painting or
1: not. That people are like getting really good at forging.
0: Yeah, but... Museum curators have found out a way in order to tell if it's authentic or fake. So, between 1945 and 1963, there were 550 nuclear weapons that were used, including the one in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And when you use a nuclear weapon, they released two isotopes, Cassium-137 and strontium 40 now, these isotopes were absorbed by the soil in practically everything. Yeah. So when a flax plant growing in contaminated soil is processed into linseed oil, which is a common pigment binding agent, those isotopes remain. So yeah. you can just simply test for those two isotopes. And if it's found, mm-hmm. then the painting is fake if it was done before 1945.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. Yeah. I I've, I've, I've seen this happen in movies where they're like testing... The paints or the pigments, you know, mm-hmm. to see to kind of date something. Uh, I guess is that called carbon dating? Yeah. Is well, that what carbon dating. Is?
0: I think this one is called uh, bomb dating.
1: Bomb dating because yeah. it comes from these uh, atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the movie Velvet Buzzsaw. It's like a Netflix original.
0: Oh, the one with Jake Gyllenhaal.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a cheesy, kind of cool horror movie. And in this movie. It's sort of like a reveal towards the end of the movie. They've been trying to catalog this artist's work and the tests come back from the pigments and it's like, uh, this isn't paint. This is human blood.
0: Oh, what? (laughs) Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's kind of like a creepy little aspect. But Ah. yeah, so there there are scientists, I guess, who study pigments and, and this... Bomb dating, as you call it.
0: Yeah, so it was really clever of Joel to think of that manner to say, like, "Well, let me just date the material that's on it to make sure that it's actually legit."
1: Yeah, there are some other um, options that he's trying to. He really just, again, he wants to prove, uh, he wants to disprove whatever he can, and and sort of like narrow down the facts until you know he finds the the ultimate truth. And I think it's in a conversation with Marilyn. Joel is so distressed in this entire episode. There's a lot of Joel like sitting down Mm -hmm. or people standing above him. Um, Anyway, he's talking with Marilyn and she has the idea of um, diet. Like you could see what they're eating. I think it's because Joel wants to prove that Pierre was a madman and, uh, you know, so that he can um, discredit any of the journal entries that Mm -hmm. Pierre has been writing uh, and Marilyn said one time, like one of her cousins ate some weird berries and couldn't stop hallucinating, and so Joel, you know, connects the dots and he's like, "Oh, that's right, hallucinations—a uh, diet." You know, we can if we can get a test sample of the stomach tissue or something like that. But uh, obviously, Maurice, who has um, sort of claimed Pierre as an icon of Sicily, uh, is not going to relinquish the body or not going to allow Joel to perform an autopsy or something like that.
0: Yeah. So, if we follow that down a little bit more further, we can see that the ultimate battle or like the conflict that's happening is whether or not to display and find out the truth of this body. Mm-hmm. Like Chris is in the camp of saying, "Well, we don't need to reveal such a bomb-shattering truth onto the world because we so have to
1: re What is the truth? We didn't really touch on that.
0: Oh, yeah. It turns out that this soldier, Pierre, was friends, or at least close associates with Napoleon, and it turns out that he wasn't at the Battle of Waterloo.
1: Yeah, according to the journals, uh, the journal entries, Napoleon was not present at the Battle of Waterloo. He also had sort of uh, a love affair with a native woman called Machka, Machka. and uh, yeah, apparently the Discovery of this journal changes history, obviously, because the Battle of Waterloo being a major historic event. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I didn't mean to like jump in there, but so Chris, he's tortured with the dilemma of should we release this information to the world and display Pierre and all of the journals that come along with him?
0: Mm-hmm. He's afraid of people having to reevaluate their entire lives, which is exactly what's going through with Joel. Because Joel is now afraid that yeah. he went through all of this training to become a doctor, and when you become a doctor, there's certain facts that are true, like latitude mm-hmm. and longitude. So when this information comes forth, Joel's having to reexamine. It sort everything of disproves
1: that a lot of facts.
0: Yeah, and um, Joel is in the camp of once he gets to this stage of acceptance, he says no. Everyone needs to know about this. If I have to go into this these terms with myself, everyone Everyone. has to.
1: Yeah. Just kind of touching on some of the themes that we're already bringing up is Chris has a uh, a radio broadcast in which he talks about this idea. uh, History is powerful stuff. Was Napoleon really at Waterloo? Would that change what I had for breakfast? So he's suggesting sort of the butterfly effect of like Mm. you know how changing this. Uh, this fact about Napoleon obviously changes French history, changes world history, but it could also affect us today somehow. Maybe there's a weird butterfly chain effect that would happen. And I guess that's kind of what's going on with Joel. He's like experiencing a whole meltdown just because of uh, the the Battle of Waterloo, you know?
0: Yeah, I find this to be a very interesting conundrum or problem that Joel is having to come with because I'm not too sure what I would do if he came down to it. Yeah. Would you are, are you in the Chris camp or are you in the Joel camp?
1: Well, I think I know where I am, but I kind of want to talk it through with you because I mm-hmm. might change my mind. Okay. But um, essentially what happens, uh, what you're referring to, the Joel camp and the Chris camp, there's a town hall meeting in which Maurice is um, proposing a museum for Pierre in Sicily, and it's going to draw on a lot of attraction. Mm-hmm. Obviously this huge historical figure that they can put on display and it's a historical informational museum exhibit. So it's when Maurice is giving his whole presentation that Chris stands up and is starting to argue that perhaps we uh, don't want to reveal all this information to the world because of its uh, the metaphysical implications of uh, unveiling Pierre to the world. is something that history and that the world at large is not yet ready for this is when Joel stands up and begins to argue with Chris. And uh, kind of what you were hinting at before, Joel says, I think we have an obligation to tell the truth. The truth belongs to everyone. It's our responsibility to tell it and then just get out of the way and you know let people absorb it. Um, just as I've had to absorb it, you know?
0: Yeah, they're going tit for tat because they keep (laughs) trading blows and Chris is talking about it being about facts, Joel talking about it being truth, and they're sparring with one another. And I have to say, I really like this town hall debate that they're kind of going at
1: right here. structure kind of thing. Yeah,
0: I'm really digging it. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but the first town hall debates was supposedly in 1858 between uh, Abraham Lincoln and mm. Stephen Douglas. They were perhaps the first town hall debates. And in fact, their type of debates is called Lincoln-Douglas debates, and they're used as a form of debate style. Okay. In, predominantly done at the high school level though. Okay. I think like speech you get and to, debate classes. Yeah, speech and debate. Once you get to collegiate level you usually do uh, MPDA or IPDA if you're from the south uh, hmm. which is the one that I had used. You also have APDA but. What are some of the key differences? IPDA has emphasis on persuasion rather than evidence and speed. So hmm. you might have seen some of those uh, YouTube videos of debate People speaking incredibly quickly in order to get their points across and are trying to hammer it home. IPDA usually doesn't do that. Okay. Um, and there's time differences. There's slight format differences. They both have an affirmative. So would you and say like uh,
1: sorry? Would you say like IPDA is more of um, a performance and like more focus on tell, uh, telling a story, whereas the other one is like we have to tell all these facts in order, like to prove our to support our point. Kind of.
0: The IPDA is more of a persuasion mechanism in order for you to convince judges. In (laughs) fact, IPDA usually uses lay judges, like as in anybody can judge it because it's based on if you're able to convince the common man of your argument. Whereas I believe MPDA is the one that has actual qualified, I've done debate, I know how this format works. Uh, I want to say that they have more time to argue on MPDA as well. Mm. I'm not entirely too sure. I never did that type of format when I was in a collegiate level speech and debate. But yeah, the the town hall debate Mm -hmm. is a great format for them to get this across. And I thought that's a neat mechanism because instead of just having these two characters go at it at the brick and try to argue it, they're literally trying to do it as uh, a town hall debate.
1: Yeah. How is uh, what about the Lincoln Douglas debates? Could you kind of describe those? Like what what format that might be in in um <laughs> those in take, respect to the others?
0: Yeah, those take primarily of the ethos logos and pathos
1: mm,
0: mm-hmm. um, approach. They're yeah. usually only done at the high school level. That, that's not to say it right, doesn't appear okay. at the collegiate level, but it's mostly high schools that okay. do Lincoln Douglas debates. They're called LD debates for short.
1: Huh. Very cool. Yeah, so we've got this little debate going on, and kind of like we were saying there, it almost feels like, you know, and I think they even bring this up in the episode, like we're talking semantics here. Uh, What is it? There's a funny cutaway with uh, Ed and Ruthann, and Ruthann leans over to Ed, and she says, oh, listen to them. Now they're getting into paradox. This is dicey (laughs) stuff. Um, So, yeah, they're they're really struggling uh, with the idea of truth and facts. Like, uh, what is it? I think... Chris calls Joel out. He says, you're confusing the truth with facts. And um, Joel says, the facts change. The truth is constant. Which I think is... Uh, I think he's got it like way off, right? Or what, what would you say like... So if we take it by definition like facts being um, a scientifically proven fact, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that is a truth that has been supported by evidence, right?
0: Yeah, I, I think I see where you're coming from. And I would agree.
1: And so... You would assume that the facts are have maybe more basis for being believable if we're kind of getting down to the nitty gritty, like truth versus facts. But I think what Joel's saying: the facts change, the truth is constant. That sounds ridiculous according to our definition uh, that I just gave you. But if you think about Joel brings up, he says, "Okay, uh, what about light? Particle or wave?" Mm-hmm. You know, the the facts uh, used to be that light is a wave. But it has been proven that light acts as both a wave and as a particle at different times. So that's an example of how history or you know scientific fact has changed as we've I guess become more sophisticated with our uh, method of investigation and, and testing. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. So the facts accommodate the truth. That's what Joel is trying to get at.
0: I think that I'm more willing to side with joel in this manner that i you laid it out in that manner because i think the truth is relative yeah it's basically whoever's perspective that you have that you're more willing to believe in
1: but here joel says the truth is the constant truth that's is the what constant. he's saying that is
0: true yeah.
1: <laughs> which i don't know i, I kind of agree with you with the truth being sort of more relative i don't know they're both kind of dancing around the same ideas and it's getting a little confusing <laughs> um what is another thing? Uh, Chris even says paradox versus contradiction. Paradox is something that seems absurd, uh, even contradictory at times, but is proven true. Like it sounds like it wouldn't be right, but it's like, oh, that's funny. It's true. It's kind mm-hmm. of a paradox that this could be accurate truth. So Chris says, you know, can something be more than one thing at the same time? Father, son, and Holy Ghost, you know, light being a particle in a wave sounds contradictory, but uh, it's a paradox. Chris offers... The Poet's Vision of the Ancient Urn. I'm not really sure what he means by that, but he says, truth is beauty, beauty is truth.
0: Yeah, is that just meant to support his earlier statement by just using a poem?
1: Yeah, I wasn't really sure what Chris meant by that, the poet's vision of an ancient urn. I think he's referencing the poem Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats, uh, which, um, and I'm quoting from it, beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know of earth and all ye need to know. So you know, there's a lot to dive into with that poem, but the idea uh, that you know, if we try to simplify it as much as we can, beauty is truth, truth beauty. Um, mm. yeah, it's very complex. What's going on? Yeah. Here. So
0: why don't we take a step backwards to try to make sense of all this? So really, the big picture is: Would you reveal a earth shattering truth that might make you reevaluate the way that you see life?
1: Okay. So sorry to keep dodging your question, but I think we're getting very close <laughs> because Joel, that's his whole dilemma this whole episode, right? And in fact, it's, um, it's pointed out very clearly in uh, sort of a dream sequence that Joel has right after this. So we're getting to this question and how will we answer it? Let's figure this out. Mm-hmm. So Joel has a crazy uh, dream sequence. I think it's after this debate. He goes to visit Pierre in the freezer and he passes out in the freezer. He goes to sleep, I guess and he's transported to Poland, uh, and he sees his ancestors all uh, having a Passover Seder, like his ancestors in ancient, <laughs> not ancient Poland, but, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> what is long, the, it's like great-grandfather or something, is like a little boy, maybe, Yoel.
0: Oh, yeah, Yoel, I think it's what they go. <laughs> what, is, uh, what is the Seder?
1: Uh, Passover Seder is um, sort of like a mass, maybe, but um, for Passover, you kind of go through... Sort of a written text where you talk about, you know, the story of Exodus. Uh, That's kind of what the holiday is uh, celebrating, you know, Moses leading the Jews out of uh, through the the desert. desert, you know. And uh, what's great about the Seder is it's sort of like a mass, but it's paired with food. Like as you go through the story, you get to eat, uh, you know, like some uh, bitter herbs and things like that. Oh,
0: wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds you know like a, this? Uh, I didn't know that at all. That sounds like one of those like, uh, you know, those Disney World <laughs> um okay that already sounds offensive I'm no, not trying to be offensive no, no
1: wait was it was it or
0: <laughs> You know those old like Disney World advertisements where they would say like this is in 4D and you would be like in the sea and like move along with you with the roller coaster ride yeah. It's almost kind of similar to that where it's like you can eat along with Moses and yeah. see what he ate it, like, kind of,
1: it kind of is you know it, the 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 food that is presented to you in the Seder is um thematically related to the story. You know, like the bitter herbs uh, remind you of the hardship of being a slave. That's Uh, actually really
0: interesting. I had no idea.
1: In Egypt, I meant, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's the subject of Elijah's cup. Uh, Not to get too much into, um, you know, the Jewish holidays and and, um, practices, but uh, it's common for you to leave out a cup uh, filled with wine for the prophet Elijah. Anytime you're having like a Sabbath or something like that, uh, you just pour a glass of wine. No one touches it. It's Elijah's cup. And the idea is that you actually go, um, you have like the kids go and they open the door for Elijah. And he's like, he's supposed to come in and drink uh, the wine.
0: Okay. So this Elijah that we're seeing in the scene, that's not like a family member. This is like a Elijah, religious figure. Yeah. So okay. Eli-
1: got it. Elijah's supposed to be sort of the guy that comes before the Messiah. Like he's coming to tell you, hey time is up like the Messiah is coming we're all going to heaven
0: okay that so, I was a little bit confused when I was watching the scene because I my knowledge of Judaism is pretty limited so <laughs> yeah. I thought that was like a relative for a second like Uncle Elijah or something I, I was like
1: what is happening Joel I think explains this all to Maurice in the following scene but um but yeah so that's what that's why Elijah's there it's funny Elijah um, Joel says you're Elijah where's the robes where's the long beard and Elijah says what you don't like my suit like he's kind of dressed up as a nice mm-hmm. uh, in a nice suit You know, you don't ever expect Elijah to actually come into the room. He says it flies in the face of reason. So it's something... Uh, this is something unrealistic, uh, sort of like this magical event that's happening to Joel.
0: That is so funny because the way I interpreted that scene when he says this flies in the face of reason, I thought he just meant like you just can't have a dead person be alive that flies oh. against the face of reason. I was missing the whole fact that oh, wow. this was a major religious figure. It would be, I guess, in terms of Christianity, like if Jesus was in the room and exactly. he was fucking And that's like no, an yeah. obscenely absurd
1: the notion.
0: Yeah, so that's... Yeah, the weight of that scene has now been revealed to me. (laughs) It's
1: kind of doubled. Yeah, well, Joel explains it to Maurice in the next scene, as I said. Uh, But, okay, we're going to get to the question now. So this is when Elijah offers the choice to Joel. He's, like, kind of indirectly referring to Pierre. But he says, um, what are you going to do, Joel? Prepare the way for the Messiah? Or are you going to turn me into an amusement park and sell autographed cups and things like that? Which is, I guess, what Maurice is doing. But what Maurice is doing... Also inadvertently, uh, I don't think Maurice is trying to do this, but he's doing what Joel wants. He's like revealing the truth to the world, you know? And my question is, um, what do you stand to gain from uh, hiding the truth about Napoleon? Like, what's the problem with, uh, I know Chris says that, you know, the world's not ready for this uh, whole historical upheaval, but I mean, what's really the problem what do you, what's, the, what's the con of um, revealing Pierre? Hmm.
0: I guess it's an unraveling of the whole situation. Like once you reveal that something that you thought was very fundamental is actually no longer fundamental or mm-hmm. not needed in the piece of the puzzle, your perception of the world might shatter just a little bit. And maybe that is the butterfly effect that he is worried about, uh-huh. that it might lead to even more of an existential crisis. So when we take something like history for granted and then suddenly we're not, Yeah, it could lead to all sorts of calamitous
1: results. I don't know if I believe in that though, because uh, this is always happening. Like we are always learning new things about the past and learning new things about what we presumed to be fact. Uh, We understand it better and better every day with science. You know, for instance, the the light being a wave or a particle. Mm -hmm. You know, things like this. Like uh, our our beliefs are constantly changing and being updated. You know.
0: Hmm, that is a good rebuttal.
1: I don't uh, I don't see how calamitous it could be to reveal this. I don't know why everyone's freaking out. I don't
0: I know. I think that like if we took it in the context of what it's happening in a scene like, oh, Napoleon wasn't at the Battle of Waterloo, just yeah. simply that fact, I agree with you. Maybe that's not that calamitous. It nothing horrendous is going to happen. Okay. But let's say it's a concrete fact And that's no longer a concrete fact. Well, let's say gravity. Let's say we re-examined how gravity works. And it turns out that the Earth is actually not done by gravity. It's done by some timey-wimey, whatever. Just something that's not what we held constant. Yeah, I think when we take that into account, it does become a much more different problem. So I think maybe we're approaching this in two different ways. Yeah, Are we approaching this in the context of saying revealing just the fact that Napoleon wasn't at Waterloo isn't going to destroy our state of being? Yeah, Or are we saying if we take is something that we've always held for granted, and it's no longer the truth. Yeah, that is devastating. So, which which side of the camp are we trying to
1: approach this at? I'm trying to think of a fact, an example of something that, if it were disproven, it would cause a crazy uh, shift. You know, but honestly, maybe there is something out there. But I don't think that, in this case, the Waterloo incident, I don't think it's that frightening of a truth. I mean, it definitely is pretty crazy. I can see how Joel is struggling with it. But I think uh, I think it's kind of like what you're hinting at. It's not necessarily just this. It's just the whole idea of truth kind of changing and that changing your reality. Mm, okay. So that's what we're really afraid of. I don't think we're... I don't know. I still think um, it wouldn't really be... Uh, I don't think it would really change our whole reality just to know that Napoleon was not at Waterloo.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that in terms of the progress of science, sometimes you do need to reevaluate the way that things are being done in order to improve upon the wheel. So, you know, like thousands of years ago, we thought that the earth was flat. Turns out it was round. We thought that we were in the center of the universe. We're not. And because we're able to come to terms with that and rewrite the facts, Mm -hmm. we can get to where we are now, technologically, scientifically, culturally. So Joel does have a great point to be made right there, that yeah. you need to look yourself in the mirror and take things the way they are. So I can see where you're coming from, where you're saying, like, it's not... There, there's no real con
1: in doing this. Yeah, you need to kind of, like... there. There's um, the idea of uh, of trying to live... Um, By avoiding For instance Chris is saying We shouldn't tell the world about this They should just go on living Thinking Mm -hmm. that Napoleon was at Waterloo Um, He brings up examples like You know George Washington Did he really chop down a cherry tree? David Crockett probably didn't kill a bear when he was 3 years old but that's mm-hmm. like you know it's better that we have those ideas that we can like believe in so it's it's sort of in a way like the the constant lies that we always tell ourselves just to get by like if we thought about the truth the fact that we will all die like mm-hmm. each of us are going to die if we think about that every day that's that's not a way to live so you know we we constantly tell ourselves these lies like we're going to live forever don't think about that right now but also, it's it's tricky because I don't think you should uh, just deny this truth of uh, Pierre Pierre's journal.
0: Yeah, I, I was trying to think of a way in which there would be some earth shattering truth that would make us really have to think about it. I think that's uh, the one that I thought of. The okay, one that so I instantly thought one. of. I got one kind got of. One. If it turns out, if it turns <laughs> out. That the Clintons are actually lizard monsters. And that was real. It was real. That would make me freak out. That would be like, whoa, okay, hang on. I need to re- rethink some things now. Yeah. If that was the truth. And it really came out. If you knew about that. Like, yeah. let's say me and you knew that the Clintons were uh, flesh-eating lizard monsters. Would you reveal that truth?
1: Yeah, I would love to know that. Like, I would... I would. <laughs> Yeah, I would like to know the truth, I guess. I'd rather not um, be ignorant of that, you know? Like, that seems like something I ought to know in order to live my life safely. <laughs> yeah,
0: but it would cause mass hysteria, would it not? Yeah. If I, if we got on CNN or NBC or MSNBC, whatever news outlet that you would like to be on, if we revealed that truth, surely that would not make America go into hysteria, right? So should we do that? Like, maybe we shouldn't.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think. Uh, I think... I think I'm really starting to feel like what this episode is getting into it's it's a big um it's a big picture that uh obviously we're having trouble wrapping our heads around. So if you're Joel and you're distressed by this, you just can't solve it in your head. I don't know. It's it's nothing that bothers me as as much as it bothers Joel, but um obviously we've taken a lot of time <laughs> talking about this. I think um there's a catalyst in this episode uh that sort of answers this problem for us, for all the characters, like you know, they don't really know how to how to find the answer, but uh, you know, it's sort of a deus ex machina thing. It's like, okay, you can't really decide one or the other, we're just going to force you into the answer, and that's uh, the Telekutans. Did you, you, you know, these uh, this tribe of Indians, I guess, uh, Native yeah, Americans, is
0: that their first time being introduced to the series?
1: Yeah, so it's actually they're mentioned in a scene with Joel in Marilyn. Uh, It's sort of the button of a scene Mm -hmm. because Joel's like, I'm not really sure what we could do or I don't know what it is. But then Marilyn's like, well, you know, the telekootins or something. She kind of brings it up. Yeah, she does. And it's not really explained until I guess we actually see it's an incredible shot. So it's during this town hall meeting. It's actually kind of what I guess interrupts Chris and Joel's Mm -hmm. debate. Uh, The doors swing open and sort of a pack like this trio of uh, sort of like young Native American men, uh, you know, clad in leather jackets and sunglasses. I think the guy in the middle has like a Madonna t-shirt. They just look like hardcore dudes kind of just like roll into the town hall and they are speaking in sort of like a native tongue. And there's there's like an on-screen translation and it says, we have come for the body. It's just like super (laughs) ominous. Yeah, I got to say, that's not a bad
0: way to end it out. Oftentimes, an outside force is the reason that we even act. And yeah. this is, they now have to do something about this. And in fact, that's even how it's resolved, is that the outside force comes and takes take, away the problem. They take
1: the body away. Yeah, uh, That's that's how it's resolved in the end there. But yeah, I think there's sort of a parallel being drawn between the Telekutans and... Uh, um, Elijah, he's like, so this is like an end of times, like this is a supernatural force that mm-hmm. uh, is going to decide it for you. Like we as humans can't make this decision, I guess. Yeah. I wanted to talk about real fast, the um, the way that the telekutins are photographed uh-huh. when they're first introduced on screen. I described it already. It's sort of like the doors swing open. And what it is, is it's the camera's like at a low angle. Uh, in front of them and dollying back really fast as they uh, move forward. So it's like they're sort of pushing uh, their bodies into the room and the camera's like leading them in. Uh, it's it's actually, I don't know if this is a direct homage to this movie, Big Trouble in Little China. Ooh. There's a gang called the Lords of Death. I want to show you this clip. Uh, obviously this will never play on radio because <laughs> you can't see it, but there's a shot in that movie um, I think it's Kim Cattrall sort of introduces uh, this um, sort of mythic gang called the Lords of Death. And we see uh, the same shot where these, you know, it's a low mm-hmm. angle camera and they're very like uh, standing tall above the camera and pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty much the same. Uh, it's the same camera shot, camera angle, camera movement. Uh, so I don't know if it's a reference to that. I'm sure, you know, maybe... Big Trouble in Little China is not the first time that has ever been done, but uh, it's a pretty cool reference.
0: No, it's uncannily similar, yeah. even like the down to the clothing, like you were saying, the camera movements. I would say, I would say they drew inspiration from that, yeah. Oh, uh, I'm pretty sure this is super racist. Correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong, but Maurice calls them whole half breeds,
1: yeah. Maurice has a few different, I don't even really know, he calls them frog Indians as well. Does that mean like French, Canadian, Native Americans or I have, something? I have no idea. He's used the term frog before to mean French, I think. He
0: has, though, that one is demeaning, but not as nearly much as, as demeaning. Half breed? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I heard that and I was like, jeez.
1: Yeah, actually, um, if you search Telekutin online, I haven't found anything. That indicates it's an actual tribe. Every every search that I've um, tried brings up Northern Exposure. Hmm. So they may have invented this tribe, this uh, name for the show. Um, if anybody knows anything about Telekutens and, and if they are uh, a real tribe, please write into the podcast, Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com.
0: Got to get that plug in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So uh, lead us out here. What did the Telekutins do uh, to end I, to resolve this? I
0: actually really like the resolution of this, if okay. only for the way that it was filmed. So we see that the body seemingly has melted away when Jelly comes into the freezer to go get more bacon. Yeah. And at first, I thought this is the part where the French Pierre... Yeah, the Frenchman, Pierre. Oh, comes alive. Comes to life. That I was like, would
1: have been such a cool resolution, right? I thought that was about to be Because everything is coming at every different angle, like trying to... Everyone has their own uh, ideas for what they'll do with Pierre. And then all of a sudden, Pierre is like out of the ice. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go canoeing. I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah. I and thought that, that so was cool.
0: the resolution. But it turns out that the telecutons have come back and they just took the body away. And from what I can tell, they're just on a canoe and they're rowing away. Yeah, And the body is draped in a blanket and I thought they were going to like dip him back into the uh, water.
1: Oh. Yeah. Who knows?
0: Maybe that's what they did. Yeah. But then, we see that when the camera shifts a little bit more to the right, it's Marilyn that's just kind of watching it. And I was like, oh, that's a great reveal.
1: Do you think, so you think she called them in? Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that she has in some way influenced their decision. Yeah. and
1: Or is he, she's at least like their inside person, Yeah, the she's insider. privy
0: to it. And Maurice even grills her earlier in yeah. the episode. He says, like, are you?
1: So I went back to watch the scene and to try to pull the soundbite for this little dialogue between Maurice and Marilyn. But it's so quick. Really, Maurice just asks Marilyn, do you know anything about this? And she shakes her head no. It's a pretty small interaction, but it does happen very early in the scene. Just to get back to the Telekutins taking the body out, the the, sort of the final image of the episode. They're canoeing, uh, as you mentioned. There's uh, some music underneath, I think, and and Chris is giving his whole closing monologue. He's reading directly from Remembrance of Things Past by um, Proust, is that how you pronounce it? Proust? Proust? I think it's Proust.
0: Though I have heard it called Proust and even I call it Proust, but yeah. I don't think that's correct. <laughs> it,
1: this this is a, I guess it's like a giant novel, right? It's also known as In Search of Lost Time. I think it's mm-hmm. been it's retranslated. A, it's a brick. <laughs> it's a brick of a book. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of closing image, very wonderfully shot. And yeah, you got to kind of get the reveal of Marilyn being uh, a little bit privy, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is a lot going on in this episode, obviously, uh, you know, ideas for you to chew on. But there are also two other storylines.
0: Yeah, a little bit of a minor plot lines, though. Yeah. I would say I like one definitely more than the other. I'm sure you can already guess which one I like more than the other.
1: I think, I, OK, I mean, we, <laughs> we like to bash on Shelly and Hauling a lot, but I actually really like their storyline here, too. What would you like to start with? Uh, I guess let's start with the Shelly and Hauling one. So uh, sort of what kind of keys this one off, this plot line, is Shelley is talking with Chris, who tells her that uh, Napoleon dumped his beloved Josephine because she couldn't bear him a child. And this is all told to Shelley as she's sort of watching Hauling from afar. So we can infer that there's something going on between them. And Shelley, I think she maybe wants a baby or she wants to give Hauling a baby. We can infer in this scene Actually, according to Pierre's journals, Napoleon has a child with Machka because Machka is apparently pregnant in mm-hmm. some of these journals. And this is all um, you know swirling around, I guess, in Shelley's head. She visits Joel, who um, he wants to help her out, agrees to um, give her sort of like some fertility tests, but he needs Holling's, uh, I guess, sperm mm-hmm. in order to do this. And Shelley kind of... I guess she has a lot of anxiety about it. Like she's she's nervous about uh, being barren, but also doesn't want uh, Holling to know that. What's, what's going on here?
0: Yeah, so I think that she's just worried that she's not enough of a quote-unquote wife material or mother material in order mm-hmm. to carry on Holling's lineage. And to her, that's what being a significant other is, is uh-huh. being able to start yeah. a actual family. And she's, like you said, incredibly anxious about this problem
1: and yeah i don't know if this is very explicit uh in the way that this plot line develops but looking back at it uh having seen it all um it's clear that you know i guess holling is being sort of cold to Shelley, and Shelley thinks it's because of all this baby talk in uh, pierre's journal and the fact that Shelley. um has apparently never used any form of birth control, um, or protection and has still never had a, you know, never become pregnant. I guess there was the hysterical pregnancy. And, um, was that in a dream schemes, putting greens? I think so.
0: I I actually totally forgot about that until she brought it up.
1: Yeah. It's been a while since they've, um, brought up sort of this whole family aspect between, uh, Shelly and Holling. There's a great deleted scene. I don't know if you call the deleted scenes on this DVD, but, uh, It's like Shelly is in a giant desert landscape. Did you see this? No, I always forget to watch the deleted scenes. Oh, man. Uh, They're usually, you know take them or leave them. But this one's pretty cool. Shelly is uh, in this giant desert and the goddess of fertility is calling out sort of like a giant voice in the sky. In the deleted scene, it's just probably like the director on a megaphone. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, but Shelly is talking with this voice in the sky and like a tumbleweed, you know, blows by. Uh, she's like, where am I? And the voice says, you're in your womb. You know, this is like- oh, that's your, barren desert. Yeah. <laughs> it's a barren kind of clever. Yeah, it's just sort of like a l- literal representation of what's, what her fear and anxiety is. And, okay, we realize what's really the problem here is um, the reason why Holling is being so cold to Shelley is because Holling has a deep, dark secret.
0: Yeah, it turns out that he has a long lineage of being French royalty. In fact, his last name used to be Devoncourt.
1: Yeah, and apparently uh, this, this royal family was quite evil. I think he said like, what is it, like the death of one of his relatives is even celebrated still, like in in some remote uh, places in France. Yeah, some parts of
0: France still celebrate the death of my family.
1: (laughs) And so you know, I think he brings out like an old newspaper showing these facts and he's determined to be the end of his bloodline. You know, he's not going to have any children just because he's worried about his lineage. He doesn't want to bring another Vancouver into the world. And um, I think, you know, I think Shelly, it actually sort of like, that kind of solves the problem. You know, I don't think Shelly actually really wanted a baby. And it's obvious that Hauling didn't want one. She was just trying to figure out, like, what's going on?
0: Yeah, it was more of a communication issue rather than the context of the issue, which is okay by itself. I just feel that... They go through this problem a lot between the two characters. Not
1: communicating.
0: Yeah, simply not communicating. Which I understand is a real life problem in a lot of relationships and yeah. impact.
1: It's emphasized because there's there's their age differences.
0: Yeah. Which mm, I don't think they go into in this episode though. I don't think they go into primarily that's the reason why they're not communicating, is because of an age difference. They're not communicating yeah. because they're just not good. At, at
1: communicating. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think that's just what they're going at. Uh, I, I think that what Holling is going through is kind of interesting, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't be the only parent. that This is where I'm, they're losing me a little bit. Okay. So he's saying the whole lineage of his uh, family are all terrible human beings, and he turns out to be the only decent one amongst his family, yeah. and he's scared that his offspring will be a terrible human being. Well, he's the father, is he not? Is he implying that his genetics to be a terrible human being?
1: Yeah, I don't understand what you're saying.
0: His offspring doesn't necessarily have to be a terrible human being, especially if Holling is the father and he knows how to be a decent human being. And you got Shelley as a decent human being. Why would you presume that your offspring would be Satan? Like, I don't (laughs)
1: rosemary's baby Uh, (laughs) oh i see what you're getting at now sorry it's like the nature versus nurture
0: yeah it's a nature versus nurture argument right here and in terms of the context of this i think that's a little bit silly if you were making an argument and saying like well my family suffers from this debilitating disease and that's Ah. hereditary i don't want my child to have that i could understand that i'd be like okay you don't want your child to suffer from x disease Mm -hmm. but in terms of just of a scale of good to bad like you're You're a great human being Or a terrible human being Like that's not what. what are you You don't
1: think that's uh, Programmed in, in your genes uh, Which is something that uh, No I mean I, I, I would I think I would Side with you there too But obviously Hauling Is more of the Nature side and, and Yeah That's what he Teaches Joel too Joel has this Realization later uh, I love his quote Joel is uh, Very feverish In bed And O'Connell Comes to visit him How old am I O'Connell?
2: Twenty-nine Wrong,
1: I'm four million years old. Colin was right. we're, we're all our genes, yeah, so Joel is feeling this uh, connection to you know, his family in Poland, and he can imagine himself sleeping in trees, crossing the Negev, uh, running from Cossacks. It's all me, he says every every bit of his history he's it's in his genes, and he he's carrying that lineage so. Yes, I think I might agree with you that Holling could raise a child. It's in his um, ability to nurture it to be a good child, even though he has these tarnished genes. Holling um, has exhibited traits of being able to overcome his negative qualities, at least as he sees it. He is not proud of uh, being a big game hunter, and he isn't that today. He's changed. So I believe that Holling could could have uh, great children. You know,
0: yeah, side with you that that's where i find issues <laughs> with like, what's this going on? plot line and i i i, I get them props for not going into the age difference uh, <laughs> yeah. angle again so yeah. at least they get a pro from me from there
1: yeah they're they're expanding the characters more which which is nice to see not the same jokes again and again but uh deep character studies just to get back to the talk about miscommunication i really mm-hmm. like their um sort of resolution of that, whenever Shelley finds out about Holling's, uh, you know, his past, she says, you really put me through a lot, Holling. If you don't tell me all the terrible things about you, how am I supposed to find out? And obviously in Holling's eyes, she's never supposed to find that out. Like those are the things that he wants to keep hidden. But the question that she brings up, you know, like how am I supposed to figure this out? I I think it brings up an interesting point you know, they're a couple together. They're perhaps even soulmates at this point, you know, and she's going to find out all the bad things. He doesn't have to worry about that. Like she's going to figure that out and why not just be upfront about it? Like don't, Hauling is, um, He's very anxious about it, like trying to keep these things secret, but she loves him for who he is and he doesn't need to hide anything. She's going to figure it out. Oh, you know? that's
0: okay. That's the thread that connects that uh, the major plot line to this plot line. No, it's communication. It's knowing the truth. Yeah. Oh, okay, there we go. We, we found it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know,
0: that is neat how the uh, writer did that.
1: Yeah, props to Henry Bromell, who actually um, has won a couple of Henry awards, like some of our past. What? Uh, nice. <laughs> like Eudora Welty and uh, Ellen Herman, who wrote episode two of this. Season. I guess I should clarify, they didn't write it together. Eudora Welty just won a bunch of O. Henry Awards, and the uh, screenwriter for episode two also won an O. Henry Award.
0: Yeah, they're not affiliated except for they both won the O. Henry Award. <laughs> they share, yeah, they share
1: that um, recognition, I guess.
0: So I guess we can go on to the final plot line. Yeah, Ed and Ruth Ann, which is a very interesting pairing. We don't see that a lot, though I would have to say that Ruth Ann is kind of like an adoptive mother for Ed.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's what's going on here, you know. Um... Ed seems to have a lot of free time on his hands in this episode. And I love that we get to spend that time with Ed, you know, because in this season particularly, he's he's not really on screen too much, but here we go. He's got his own subplot.
0: Yeah, so Ed's going into Ruth Ann's store, and he notices that there's a help-wanted sign. Yes. And he needs cash on hand because he yeah. wants to pay $200 to have a spec be doctored. Like, what is it called when the spec is looked at?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how he terms it, but he's got a little script that, uh, he sends to a critic, I guess, just to, just to give notes, you know?
0: Yeah. Some feedback on whether or not it's a good piece of work and uh, Ruthann decides to hire him.
1: Yeah. turns out that, um, you know, apparently Maurice doesn't have a lot of work for Ed to do. He's too busy with, uh, Pierre and, uh, Ed needs the money cause he just, he either just spent $200 or he's going to spend $200 to send his script in to be critiqued.
0: Yeah, I like when yeah. Ed gets his, uh, I guess his first quote-unquote paycheck even though it's paid in cash directly. Uh-huh. uh I don't know if she deducted from that. She, uh, I don't yeah. know if she properly did the uh, proper payrolls but when Ed took the cash and he went, he turned around Uh-huh. Walk away and he turned back around to look at Ruth Ann. I thought Ed was about to learn a very valuable lesson at about the income tax. <laughs> but no, he is just wanting to invite Ruth Ann to dinner at his place.
1: Yeah, he um, invites Ruth Ann to dinner. I think it's kind of spurred by uh, this can of peas that Ed um, has been labeling. He says, Oh, would you look at that? That's not a can of peas, that's a can of art. And, you know, I guess he's like remarking at the design on the can of peas. And he invites her to dinner and he says, Don't worry, I'm not going to serve these peas. This is for admiring, not for
0: eating. <laughs> this is for
1: my Andy Warhol inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's fun. We get some Ruth Ann time, some Ed time. Oh, you know what? I didn't even look. What does he cook for Ruth Ann? We don't actually see what they eat. I just I just rewatched it. He's um, the the plates are clean whenever they come uh, into this dinner scene. They do share some instant coffee,
0: Bavarian chocolate.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and Ruthann says it's pretty good coffee. What do they talk about in their subplot?
0: So they're talking about basically like the path that you take in life. Yeah. So. Ann is discussing about her sons and how one went on to become, what was he, like a commercial truck driver? driver? Truck yeah, driver. a truck driver in uh, Oregon. Portland, yeah. Yeah. Portland. And her other son, however, became an investment banker, and she was very disappointed in him. And I thought, whoa, hang on now. Like, the world needs investment bankers, though. (laughs) Yeah, I never quite understand that. Like, I understand why you don't want to become an investment banker. Uh I totally understand that. I don't know why we need to frown on that profession, though, because you need bureaucratic (laughs) uh, men and women. That's just something that's required in... society.
1: It's just the image of an investment banker in uh, film and TV. That's, that's the evil villain. You know,
0: (laughs) I, I I really don't like that. Like, I understand that it's an easy target to take. And we've all heard about network horror stories. All these executives Uh don't know what they're doing and they're coming down and saying like, oh, the kids like Graham and like, let's have that in our story and, you know, interfering with the creative process. But I think that it's still a good profession. Like it, it fulfills a purpose. Yeah. Uh, let, let me, let me yeah. phrase this in another way. Like the world needs like journalists. We don't need people like comedians to make fun of journalists. Yeah. One is required. The other is not. <laughs> uh, and I say this as a person that wants to go into more of the entertainment field. Yeah. I still am able to see that like accounting and we don't need someone finance, to make fun of
1: these investment bankers. Yeah. And demonize them. They're uh, still
0: required. Yeah. I, I think her son still chose an evil path, and she's <laughs> she's disappointed. It's later revealed that she's disappointed right. because he had such great music talent.
1: Maybe it, that's why she's so sour about the investment banker thing. Is because yeah, it could have been a what is it trumpeter, right?
0: Yeah, you could have been a trumpeter, but who's to say that he's not making waves in the business world? Right, he's um, not the Miles Davis of that. Well,
1: let's place. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think you have you may bring up a good point, but um, let's focus on uh, what Ruth Ann is trying to um, explain to Ed. So, okay, it does turn out that. Uh, Ed gets his notes back on the script and they're all bad. Basically saying like you should search out a a better field for your career that better suits your uh, abilities or something. Mm -hmm. Basically a dig. uh,
0: He's not a good writer. He's he's not a
1: good writer. He didn't have a midpoint, whatever that is. (laughs) What is that? Midpoint uh, typically in like your sort of Hollywood movie, the midpoint is usually, actually it's usually a car chase scene. (laughs) <laughs> you'll you, you'll be surprised in any genre nowadays. There's usually some sort of chase that happens at the midpoint, but um, you know, story wise, a midpoint is sort of you know obviously the middle of the script. But there's uh, a huge reversal that happens in the midpoint. Hmm.
0: So you would say it's like the climax? Uh,
1: no, no, no. no. It comes before the climax, but uh, it sort of spins the story around you know, it, on its it, head. Yeah, it invites new possibilities for you know, the second act or into the third act. okay. Apparently Ed has no grasp on that. But really what Ann is uh, trying to instill to Ed is um, basically you have to roll with the punches. You know, if there's no obstacle or if you never, if you always get what you want and always succeed, you can't really grow as an artist or as a human being. Uh, That's what Ann is referring to with her son, Matthew, the investment banker. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a great trumpeteer. And Ruthann, she thinks she spoiled it for him because she always praised him too much. She never gave him uh, anything to work for. I mean, he was already good at it, so I guess it's hard to blame Ruthann for that. But I think she sees that An artist really needs to be challenged.
0: Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of that idea because I think that art requires rules and limitations, which sounds counterintuitive to what art should be, Mm -hmm. which is very free and open. But I think that true skill comes from bending the rules and working around them rather than having no rules at all and doing whatever you want. Uh, I think like a classic example that's used a lot is like maybe John Cage's music. Okay. Yeah, uh, John Cage was a person that was uh, famous for being incredibly nonsensical with his music mm-hmm. to the point that he would just write, like he would draw out like a music sheet yeah. in terms of spelling out a literal word. Like it would have no bearing it. wouldn't on, be
1: musical notes or anything. Yeah, no, yeah. it wouldn't be
0: anything like that. And he would call that an art piece, yeah. which you could say is an art piece, but I would say that you still need to have some semblance of the rules in order for you to break them. Yeah, I think that limitations, particularly in the field of art, is a good thing. And I'm a fan of Ruth Ann's interpretation of it.
1: Yeah. You know, I think kind of what she's saying is all great art changes you. You know, you have to adapt in order to improve. You can't just keep doing the same thing again and again. And she's trying to instill that to Ed. You know, you have to be able to adapt and overcome these things. There's a really great quote from um, Keith Jarrett, who's this famous uh, jazz pianist who played with Miles Davis. And he talks about a time when Miles Davis was, you know, revealing some amazing universal truth to him. So if you don't already know, Miles Davis is an incredible, famous jazz musician, also known for just his jazz ballads. He was a master of the jazz ballad. And Keith Jarrett says, Miles told him one time, he says, Keith, you know why I don't play ballads anymore? Because I love playing ballads so much. Sort of the genius to that is he has to be able to see that even what he loves uh, needs to be able to move. Like Keith says, he says Miles would probably rather play with a bad band playing terrible music than actually have a great band that played whatever he played before. And it's against his own instinct, which is, Actually, what makes it a creative act?
0: Yeah. So you would, like you're saying before, you would think that whatever you're good at, wh- whatever's in your wheelhouse, you want to continue just hammering home at that, playing yeah. your strengths, But he was like a master at it. And no, he was incredibly. He had it to at walk it.
1: away because, you know, if he wanted to grow as an artist, um, you know, he he already played the blues. He doesn't need to do it again.
0: Yeah, he needs to have some sort of realization that there is a limit to what he can do, and he needs to come mm. across it and find a way to evolve, right, and to become more fleshed out as an artist you know what they say if you love it don't ever play it again
1: (laughs) yeah that's basically what's going on here I like that um Ruthann in one of these scenes with Ed it's a a little moment that you know could have been cut but I'm glad that it's here Ruthann leaves at the end uh, leaves Ed's shack I guess as it were (laughs) and she says uh you coming into work tomorrow and he sort of gives a nod yes and she says good and you know you don't really need that, but it it's a, it's, um, invites the idea that you just got to keep going. Don't give up, you know, wake up every day, come into work, like don't. Because this, this is in the time when Ed is kind of depressed about not having a, a great script.
0: Yeah, I actually like that, but for a different reason. I okay. thought with that line, it implied that Ed didn't go to work
1: today. Oh, so there is a deleted scene where they where they say that Ed didn't show up today. Oh, okay. Well, um, I like
0: it more that it's it, it, yeah. you learn from it from here yeah. than rather explicitly
1: showing us. Yeah, we don't really need to know that Ed didn't come into work because it kind of plays like yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just since we're on the topic, that that deleted scene, uh, it's actually Chris and Ruth Ann in Ruth Ann's store. Maggie comes in. And she's like, hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, They're dream casting for Pierre Le Moulin, the miniseries. So, uh, you know, they're saying like Richard Chamberlain could play Pierre. Robert Conrad could play Napoleon. And then they're like, wait, but who would play Machka? And they said, uh, I think it was Chris maybe, or maybe it was Maggie who said, Daryl Hannah. This is a fun little Hmm. scene. It's a really short scene, but it's (laughs) like, hey, fun idea that they're like having a little group activity, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And the ending of the Ruth Ann Ed storyline is pretty cool. Ed is back at work and he's labeling cans, but he's kind of having, kind of struggling with it. And Ruth Ann comes over and shows him how to do it super fast. And uh, I just love their little scene that plays out. You think I could ever learn to do that, Ruth Ann? Ed, I think you can do anything that you put your mind to. Why? Why not? Oh, never said that
2: to me before, Ruth Ann. What have other folks got that you haven't got?
1: parents they can be as much a hindrance as a help ed believe me
2: yeah ruthann
0: remember how you can teach your son responsibilities on how to hold a job like an investment banker and that <laughs> turns out to be a hindrance yeah, that's yeah, that, that sucks as a parent
1: <laughs> all right come on <laughs> she, she's you know she's dealing with her own thing her her son matthew is probably a great investment banker you know in fact i, I think we'll probably will see matthew in the future oh, really? of the show i think so I definitely remember um, episodes with Ruth Ann's um, children in it. So maybe Matthew, maybe uh, what's the other? What's the name of her other son? The truck driver, Rudy. Yeah. So I think maybe one or the other or both uh, will will show up in the series eventually. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, now is the perfect time to throw to our guest. Our guest this episode is my great friend Sean. Uh, I really wanted to include him in this episode, uh, particularly because. He's just sort of like a magical human being. Uh, you you know Sean.
0: Yeah, he's like a Dr. Seuss character that just came out of the books into life.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this episode has a lot of magic in it and a lot of weirdness. And uh, I think, you know, I, f- I found it very fitting. I- I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. All
2: right, right, first, first of all, I'd like to just thank Lee and just for considering me for this and sharing this show with me. I love being exposed to new things, so... Naturally, um, I, I, I really appreciated your taking the time to expose me to northern exposure. you know it 's something i, I don 't know how it escaped me. Um, I it just must have slipped under the radar i did, never i don 't even know what network this show aired on like i, I don 't know how I missed this, but yeah, i'd never even heard of it until I met Lee and I remember him always going into his dorms watching episodes of northern Exposure on his projector with on their projector with Kyle and, and um I was just always like what what is this show you know it had a it had like a um yeah. Like a tone that was like reminiscent of like like a combination of like the wonder years and growing pains. If they had a you know baby, but also it had like, I like there was this one character, the one, um, this I guess he was a doctor, you know. I kept on like hearing him talk, and I was like, it's like he was you know drinking molasses or like he had sap in his mouth, like we'd mm, have these little moments where he would dwell on his con like his I don't know, stretch his words out in such a way, and it was it was so familiar to me, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and then I was just like, oh. He's doing Woody Allen. That's a Woody Allen impression, basically, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and it's so funny because like as soon as I realized this, like a moments later, there was a photograph of like a signed copy of Woody Allen to um, to uh, what was that character's name? He was like a like a, he was like a, I just like kind of see him as a hybrid of. Um, of like Keanu Reeves from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with like uh, a mixture of James Franco. It's like, it's like they all studied each other. Like all these people influenced each other when they were they went. I don't know. Like they had I don't know, similar um, archetypes. I don't know. But I really he was my favorite character by the way. I loved his uh, his goals and I, he was just interesting to me. And he was comical and I, there were moments like where they're. Where it was like a like a soft comedy, like it was like like lighthearted, just um, comedy, and like um, there were moments where um, I I do appreciate the, like the the kind of the cerebral nature of the show, and it was nice having like a, um, like little check-ins of like wisdom, and I loved I loved how like they were they're really brave to tie into Judaism, I think, and just to like even include religion. in in philosophical, you know, that that, that idea of including religion in the show was impressive to me. Um, I thought that was kind of a bold move. Also, I really enjoyed the debate between Chris and uh, I I suppose that's the main character, that little Woody Allen, um, I, I forget his name, I'd have to look it up, but, you know, I was looking at Chris, the radio guy, and I was watching him and I was like, this guy looks familiar, how do I know this guy? And then it hit me, He was in The Wonder Years. He was in an episode of The Wonder Years. uh, And, man, that that was my show growing up. I really loved the tone of The Wonder Years, man. It was just... Mm, it was so so beautiful. I loved it. it. Really, I don't know. Captured my adolescence. I feel like uh, maybe, but that's um, a little tangent. But I, I really appreciated it being exposed to the show, and um, I, I, it's interesting to see it out of context and like to not. But I, I feel like I got a good handle of the characters and their archetypes, and um, I, I really appreciated like the the little ditzy Marsha Brady, you know, character when she was how she was explaining her. um <laughs> <laughs> Her many encounters with sperm, that was very, um, that was another brave move for the 90s television era, and I don't know, that was, that, that kind of caught me off guard, and I, I needed that, I feel like I, I, that's what, like, and there was another time in the show, and I was like, okay, something's happening, they're doing this philosophical debate, this is great and everything, but something's missing, what am I missing, and then these, like, Indu you, in- <laughs> <laughs> it's just in sunglasses and a Madonna shirt. Shirt just burst into the room like something <laughs> so like dramatic. And I was like, "That's exactly what I needed. That's what I needed. I need something random like that to happen." And um, <laughs> it kind of jolted me back into it. And it was it was interesting. It was interesting. But yeah, very unique tone for a show. Um, I, I see why you enjoyed it. It's it's certainly really hard to make art these days that is timeless. And I definitely wouldn't say that this is an an example of something that is timeless. You know, it, it's just especially hard, I think, with movies. But, you know, like, um, but it, it's very it's very 90s. It feels very 90s. And um, I appreciated the episode. And I I, 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 I don't know. I, I'd be curious to, to see how, how that kind of formula applies to the rest of the show. And, and, and the conflict was probably rather unique, having discovered this frozen um, man. So I, I would be curious to see a little context and... What the other challenges that these characters might face on a day to day basis,
1: yeah, that was Sean's take. There's a lot going on here. let's get let's get into it. i have kind of got some notes uh, from the beginning of his critique. Uh, he he mentioned something about a uh, he he didn't even you know th- this show kind of flew under the radar. he he wasn't even sure what network it aired on. And I don't know if we mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, but yes, CBS oh, we was, said that in every episode. I think we sometimes we say nineteen ninety series. Sometimes we say CBS series. Sometimes we probably say NBC, but then that gets edited out because it's a mistake. (laughs) Uh, Or ABC, I think I've said that before. But uh, CBS is the network that was the home of Northern Exposure. And uh, he mentions seeing me watch this uh, TV series in my college dorm room with my roommate Kyle, who, man, he needs to be a future guest on this podcast. He is a huge fan of the show. uh, And I just love to, you know... I wonder if he's watched it uh, in recent years and kind of want to invite him back and see what he's got to say today.
0: Yeah, I think yeah he'd be a great guest on yeah. I forgot that you guys would have that projector screen of yours in yeah. that dorm room. Like y'all would always have like these uh, screenings, like screenings, like movie nights or something. And you would just, it would just take out the entire
1: wall, wall yeah. of the
0: dorm room. Didn't y'all used to watch a lot of MASH on there?
1: Yes. MASH was another uh, show that that's kind of Kyle's. Like if Kyle had a podcast, you do MASH. Would be MASH. I would love to guest on that. <laughs> and if Sean had a podcast, Wonder Years, you know, we Wonder to years. get this Wonder Years podcast off the ground.
0: That's a good show to be hooked on as a young adult. Though, yeah, I think I it's mean, a great, uh, yeah, Fred Savage, Danica McKellar, yeah,
1: yeah, great life lessons. I think uh, Sean equated Northern Exposure as kind of a mixture of wonder years and growing pains. I've never seen growing pains, but have you?
0: Uh, no, I thought he was talking about facts of life. I oh. get those two shows confused
1: <laughs> very much, but yeah, like kind of like what I was hinting at, I can kind of estimate that you know, sort of like these life lessons and uh. Northern Exposure has uh, some humanity to it, I think, too, that, that maybe is what is tying it to Wonder Years uh, for Sean.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what he's trying to connect with this is that the lessons that just trying to impart onto us in Northern Exposure are also kind of timeless lessons. And that's what makes it, like he said, art. Yeah. It's hard to find art that remains timeless. great and, yeah, we, we, within the lexicon of what, whatever we're speaking. So...
1: Is this show timeless? You know, that, that's kind of what uh, Sean brought up. He's like, maybe not. It's, it's very 90s, but I think that's kind of a central idea to our podcast. Is Northern Exposure Timeless? And a lot of times it's not. But well, like <laughs> a
0: uh, in some societal aspects, it's definitely not. But yeah. the lessons that they're imparting can be, like even the one for uh, this episode yeah. where we're talking about whether or not to reveal something that can make you reevaluate the way that you view life. Change That's history, still yeah. something that's talked about today, especially with topics of censorship uh-huh. and uh, the interconnectedness of individuals. So I would say that yeah, definitely. Yeah. Northern Exposure can knock it out of the park in terms of topics that we
1: talk about today. For sure.
0: Yeah. I also like that he talks about Ed being an amalgamation of Keanu Reeves <laughs> and James Franco.
1: Yes, that's a good, uh, that's a good observation. It's, uh, he, I think he said Ed was his favorite character. And I think, you know, he's probably one of our favorite characters. Yeah. A lot of guests on the show. I mean, everyone loves Ed. So glad that he's back, uh, in the subplot, uh, limelight, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I've
0: never heard of Shelley being described as Marshall Brady though.
1: That was a good, another good little, um, observation as well. You know, (laughs) does Shelley ever get her nose broken? Uh, I don't think so. Does that happen in the Brady Bunch?
0: Yeah, it's one of those iconic scenes, at least to me. I think it's when uh, Greg and Peter are playing football outside and I think Greg throws the football and he misses Peter and it just nails (laughs) Marsha in the nose and she goes, oh, my nose! And she just falls down. It's
1: the funniest scene ever. I love it. So that's like a perfect vine or like a meme (laughs) reaction
0: Yeah, so uh, that's unfortunate if she doesn't get her nose broken like Marsha Brady. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. But I also like that he brings up the fact that Joel Fleischman has a lot of
1: similarities to Woody Allen. Yeah, I've never... I liked how he sort of uh put it together in his head. I've never thought about that accent. Uh, the way he described it with like, it's like you have molasses or sap in your mouth. It's kind <laughs> of the perfect description for how that sounds, you know? And of course the show uh, has a strong love affair with Woody Allen and Woody Allen films. Uh, we see that through Ed a lot. And actually this um the Passover Seder scene in mm-hmm. this episode is very reminiscent of uh, like the scene in Crimes and Misdemeanors when uh, I think it's Martin Landau. Goes to like his family's old home, and as he's walking around, he gets transported to this uh, Passover Seder of when he was like a kid or something like that.
0: Mm. Isn't there a Woody Allen film that actually deals with cryogenics? Yeah, I think it's called Sleeper.
1: Oh, yeah, the old comedies. Yeah, he's like a uh, yeah, exactly. He's he's frozen. I guess he was in his time period, the sixties or the seventies, and then he comes back into the future, and it's just this whole comedy of what happens to someone from you know, current time being transported to the future. Yeah. Sean also brings up uh, sort of the bravery of tying in religion here. And and I think uh, it's a good point. I think religion in this episode gives uh, the power of this problem, this dilemma that Joel's facing. It gives it a lot of epic weight, you know, sort of like the Messiah, the end times. And it also kind of uh, strengthens uh, the Telekutans who are sort of the deus ex machina. Yeah.
0: A little bit of religion helps make the medicine go down the throat. And I think it's helping (laughs) Joel come to terms with the way that he needs to rethink his decisions.
1: It's just these giant ideas that uh, are bigger than humans. You know, it's this giant spiritual feeling. Mm
0: -hmm. Though That never did occur to me, though, that it was playing on religion a lot. Like, I knew that it was... Yeah, yeah, the episode. I knew they were drawing upon religion, but the way that Sean had framed it was that it was... Maybe because he's looking at it as an outsider, but he was looking at it as if it was a unique aspect that you were drawing heavily upon religion. Whereas between you and yeah. me, when we've seen the show throughout, it's very common to call upon Joel's Jew, uh, right. Jewish heritage. That's like sort of
1: part of his character. Yeah, it's part
0: of his character. But looking at it from an outsider's perspective, that really is something yeah. to take into account that there's an otherworldly influence on them, a spiritual influence mm-hmm. within his decisions.
1: Yeah, sort of this. I mean, like you said, we've seen Joel. Uh, Talk about Judaism in a number of episodes. Uh, this this one though really dives in to uh, some tenets of Judaism and you know the scripture of Elijah and, and things like that. So maybe more so than other episodes, uh, you know, it's focusing on religion. But I think you're right. You know, it's like we get we get Judaism. Yeah, in just about every episode, also, a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's also unique that it doesn't call upon the aspect of faith in religion, which a lot of times, whenever TV episodes yeah. do go into religion, it's the topic of the belief of God. Whereas yeah. this one is uh, not about that at all.
1: Yeah, I think it's more relating to just sort of an anxiety and a fear of like the end of times and and sort of like you know. Sort of like what Chris says. It's like, did George Washington really chop down that cherry tree? Does Elijah really come and drink the wine? It's like, finally, like, these lies that we tell ourselves uh, are actually true. You know, Joel is, for all intents and purposes, transported, and he meets Elijah, you know, Mm -hmm. in this uh, this dream reality. I think this episode has you know, obviously we've talked about structurally, but just dialogue, really impeccable writing. There's so many sound bites that I want to play in in this podcast. But honestly, like if you have to watch an episode of Northern Exposure, this is a good one to start with. It's pretty quick and the writing, uh, yeah, top notch. I, I would agree. I think that
0: a lot of times whenever Northern Exposure goes a little out left field, I usually think that there isn't enough substance to back up whatever they're trying to mm, sell. Yeah. This time, I feel that they're getting a good mixture. Like, this was a totally out-of-the-box idea. Yeah. Um, which could have played terribly. Like, that could have just been the whole premise of the episode. Is like, oh, there's, like, a frozen human being inside this icicle. Let's play along with this. But they were tackling a much more larger philosophical issue that didn't feel like it was being really hammered in. Uh-huh. Like, it, I mean, I know there was a whole debate yeah. about it, but the way that it was tackling, it was done tactfully, yeah. I find.
1: So I think that, I agree. I think this is one of the... Makes you think, but it doesn't like answer everything for you, you know? Ex-
0: yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Kind of vague, but in the best of ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely what I would say a top five right now, I would say. Oh, yeah. Top,
1: top yeah. three, maybe? I am at, Wow, yeah. No, it's, it's a, I forgot how great this episode is. I can only imagine, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how it actually went down, but I can imagine this script... Being finished, and the producers were like, "Wow, this is a cool episode. Like, <laughs> who's going to direct this one? You know, who's go- how are we going to do this one?" I I, I liked. To, I think that um, sort of the Pierre ice block that was like a very special um, creation by the production designer and the art team. You know, that was kind of a big budget item. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise, this episode seems like it. Um, you know, there's no fantastical, uh, super fantastical environments. You know. When he goes back in time to Poland, it's just like in a dining room, you know? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think this could be shot on a pretty tight budget, but uh, it seems like one of those episodes where they're like, this is going to be our big one. And obviously, it was released, uh, one of the few episodes to be released on video before uh, the DVDs came out. So they definitely felt that, they must have felt this was a special one. Yeah. Well, okay, next week, we've got the episode titled Roots, episode seven, season three.
0: Uh, I'm guessing I, I don't think they would go in this direction, but it's not referencing the television series Roots, is it?
1: Yeah, the television series based on the Alex Haley book, uh, with the same title, Roots. Uh, I think you might not be too far off here. Really? So they're gonna delve into race. Uh yeah, maybe so. Hmm. we'll save it for we'll save it for the next episode. Charles, I'll see you next week. Yeah, I'll see
0: you next week. Like Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Sean for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at Northern at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.